Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Good evening, everyone. Glad you're here. Welcome to our first uh, Bible study of the new year. We have this week and next. Some of us have this week and next, and then I'm going to be gone with the team to Peru. And so instead of starting a new series, I thought I'd just share tonight um, from a story that I've been thinking about a little bit, and maybe we can uh, glean something from it and receive God's help. Here it is in Luke chapter 19. Why don't we... Why don't we uh, take a look at that? Um, when you've been a Christian a while, uh, sometimes you forget how much Jesus loves people who aren't Christians yet, because you think, man, he loves the church, right? And he, he does love the church, but uh, his heart is to reach people who are not yet in the church still, you know, and sometimes we can get to doing our thing and forget that. And so it's important to remember that, or that we can think that God expended somehow all of his energy in saving the lost on us. And he's got no energy to save other people uh, in the same way. Um, I'm joking about that, of course. But I know that we can feel or think that certain people can't find God. That we were somehow among the blessed to be able to do so. And maybe other people can't do that. Um, this story relates to that. Um, several years ago, I have to admit to you that there was a man um, who would occasionally come to church with his family. And I thought to myself that um, and when he was in town, and I knew a little of his history and his experience with church, and I really wasn't sure if he'd ever come to the Lord. So I kind of had thought maybe that wasn't going to happen. It's not that he was really, really bad. It's that he might be hard to the gospel. And so I thought maybe he wouldn't um, turn to Christ. And, you know, um, that's true in this story. There's, there's someone here that I think a lot of people had written off, and so... Um, you're going to see here um, a man named Zacchaeus. Let's read the story in Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there whose name was Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd, and so he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he came down and at once he welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, uh, look Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay him back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. All right. So we're, we're thinking about uh, Zacchaeus here tonight. And there was this man called Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. Uh, he was a boss at his job. Okay? He was wealthy. Uh, and short, probably 
They say in those days, probably people were about five foot tall is the typical height of a man, so shorter than five feet. And uh, he lived in Jericho. We know that. People thought of tax collectors as really outside of God's covenant. They didn't, they thought of them as the, you know, the less than those who really couldn't be redeemed. People had their priorities in the wrong place. And maybe that was true of many of them. Um, They were hired to take customs from the Jewish people and to give money to the Romans. I want to show you a slide here. This is, um, this is from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. They say there, uh, one usually became a tax collector by bidding against others to guarantee the highest amount of money to the tax farmers. The tax farmer would be somebody like uh, a publican, like probably what Zacchaeus is. And uh, they were, those were directly responsible to the Roman government. Okay, so maybe you can start to see a little bit of a problem here is that you're getting people who are bidding uh, in order to get a job to give the most that they can back to the Roman government. So if they get the bid, then they're going to go out there and collect exorbitant amount of taxes. In addition to that, they're probably going to uh, add a little bit on top for themselves because the Romans didn't care if you took a little off the top as long as they got theirs. Okay, so this is kind of what was going on in the tax situation of the day. And then, in addition to that, we can ask, why were they so hated? One is that they were collecting money for a foreign power. I don't know if that has really uh, occurred to us, but there is a religious problem with this, that people think this is the promised land, the Romans are in the promised land, and you have a certain segment of the Jewish population that are working for the Romans, this foreign overlord, that they're funding, in a way, something that stands in opposition to God's people. So you could see that would be seen as anti-patriotic at the least and traitorous at the worst. Okay, So there's a problem with that. And then not only they collect money uh, for Rome, but unscrupulously they grew wealthy at the expense of others. Like they had no problem um, charging extra taxes for themselves to get a little bit more wealthy on top of all of that. And then the final thing would be, hold on just a second here. The final thing would be that they were, well, this is not what I wanted to happen. Here we go. They were in regular contact with Gentiles, rendering them unclean. Okay, so do you remember that when Peter was on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner, there's a little bit of an irony there because that's a place where dead things were, right? And God showed him the vision of the things let down, and you're going to receive a visit, and the Gentiles, a Gentile is going to welcome you to come, and you're to go. And Peter's like, I can't go under the house, under the roof of a Gentile, or I'll be unclean. And God says, don't call unclean what I call clean. So the idea was there was a kind of a spiritual cooties that you could get, or uh, a filth that you can get by being in contact with those who are spiritually unclean. So don't get around them. They'll, they'll taint you spiritually. Well, if that's true, how can Jesus remain sinless, right? So there was this idea that because these tax collectors regularly contacted Gentiles or were in contact with them, they were unclean. So people thought of them as um, despicable. Okay? So not only were they viewed as traitors by some, but cheats and liars as well. They were considered the worst kind of sinner. And what's ironic about this is that, do you know which gospel uh, is, says the harshest thing or um, 
maybe it's better to say, has the most derogatory references to tax collectors. Anybody want to guess? Matthew. Matthew. And uh, anybody know what Matthew's other name was? Levi. And he was a tax collector. Okay, so he probably wrote down all those derogatory names because he'd probably been called all of them. And so he's just reporting. This is what people think about the tax collectors. So Matthew reports on all of those things. Um, but the question I think that comes comes up here is, we might think that people are unredeemable, certain people, but does Jesus think of people as unredeemable? Okay, That's something to think about. I know you know the answer to that. But let's look at our first, our first major point here is Jesus came his way. Jesus came his way. Look at verses 1 through 4 with me again. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, publican, uh, tax farmer, might be the way to to say that. Uh, And he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he couldn't see see over the... It was a practical problem here. He couldn't see over the crowd. And so he ran ahead, and he climbed a sycamore fig tree uh, to see him since Jesus was coming that way. It says sycamore fig tree, probably having your translation sycamore tree or maybe something else. This isn't like your North American sycamore tree. This is a, a smaller fig tree that has lots of branches, and they're easy to climb. And a short guy can get up in it. Okay, So he's gone to get in that tree to look and to see Jesus as he passed by. Now, why was Jesus going that way? Anybody uh, have an idea? We're, we're getting near the end of the Gospels. Anytime you get even almost halfway through the gospel, the direction, any gospel, the direction starts to turn towards the cross, okay? So it's good to keep that in mind. I think almost 50% of John is the last week of Jesus' life. Did you know that? Like, we're not, these aren't full-on biographies. These are telling the story of Jesus' death, the most significant thing that he came for. Surely his birth is important, and surely his life is important. But it's all headed towards a culmination, and that's where the Gospels spend their time. I think there's probably, um, if I'm thinking right, somewhere around six chapters dedicated to one single night in the Gospel of John, the upper room. So there's a lot that's devoted to this, this last week of Jesus' life. And so that's where Jesus is headed. He's headed towards the cross. Now, you could say that of any, any moment within his life. It's all headed towards the cross, but in this time he has specifically said so. In the previous chapter, Luke eighteen thirty one, it says, Jesus took his disciples aside and he told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything uh, that was written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. The disciples didn't understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Okay, um, is, That's kind of relieving, isn't it, a little bit? that The guys who are closest to Jesus, they at times didn't know what was, was going on there. But he explained, I have to go. I have to go to Jerusalem for this very reason. So he's on the way to Jerusalem to go to the cross, right? And he comes through Jericho, where he, where he meets up with Zacchaeus. 
Jesus. Now, the custom for the Jewish people uh, was to travel between Galilee. You can see that here. Galilee up in the north where Jesus, where Jesus is from. Okay? And that's right here, right? And this is the Sea of Galilee. And uh, often they didn't want to go through Samaria. Why did they not want to go through Samaria? Can you recall? They, that, I mean, yeah, that's a way to say it, is that there was a, a people group that were mixed in their race and their religion. Okay? They had adopted Judaism, but they had mingled it with pagan religion. So they've got this hybrid religion. There's a hybrid race there, and they were considered to be uh, unclean, just like the Gentiles. But in a, there was like a, a even greater hatred for the Samaritans than there were even for the Gentiles. In fact, when you pass through this Samaritan region here in the middle, um, people would shake the dust off their feet when they passed through it because they didn't want to be contaminated even by the dirt of that area. Okay, so what they often did is that they would cross over the Jordan River and they would come down and they would come across the Jordan River when they were in Judea and then on to Jerusalem. And so you can kind of see that. And the place of this, of course, is Jericho right here. So they um, crossed over at the place that was Jericho, crossing the Jordan there. We know that's the case because in Luke 18.31, it says that they crossed over into Jericho. All right, so let's get rid of this. All right, so Jesus was on his way to the cross, and uh, he was going to bear the sin of the world. But the amazing thing is, is he, all along the way, he stops to minister to individuals. Okay, so think of this, that he's going to bear the sins of the whole world, but the individual still matters to him. Okay, you can see that in the life of Zacchaeus in this encounter that he has. He, he heals a blind man along the road just before this uh, encounter with Zacchaeus. You can read that at the end of Luke 18. Uh, a man cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops and, and heals him and then passes through Jericho and... Um, is on his way to the cross. So by this time, Jesus' fame had spread well beyond Galilee. I mean, he wasn't just famous in Galilee. In fact, I think the trajectory for his fame started with John the Baptist saying, early in Jesus' ministry, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So already people's eyes are kind of on Jesus, and then he's performing miracles, and rumors are reaching people that he's raised the dead, and uh, the feeding of 5,000, and there's crowds that are following him, and there's a buzz that goes before him, and the religious leaders are mad. And so all of this is contributing to a growing fame and at the same time a growing opposition. So uh, his miracles turned this flame into wildfire, and crowds were now finding him. But the reluctant and the quiet and the short, they kind of get pushed aside, don't they? I was thinking about when Zacchaeus heard Jesus was coming, uh, he wanted to get a look at him, and he couldn't see him, so he climbs a tree. And here's a really good example about how God rewards those who seek him out. You know, it's just a, I think at this point it's a curiosity, but it's about to grow. And uh, it's like that scripture that says, you'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Jesus responds to those who seek him out, those who insist that in him, they have what they really need. Uh, people who don't uh, let their problem 
or their shortcoming, literally in, in Zacchaeus' case, stand in the way. Uh, think of the, the woman with the issue of blood. The crowd was around Jesus, and she presses in to touch the hem of his garment. And the man who had uh, really four good friends, Jerry, Barry, Larry, and Gary, who'd let him down through the roof, busted a hole in the roof and, and let him down so that he could uh, be ministered to by Jesus. They didn't let uh, mere buildings stand in the way of, of getting the miracle. And the blind man who cried out, you remember people told him to be quiet, but he cried all the louder, have mercy on me. And Jesus touches and heals him. And here this tax collector climbs a tree. So we should let people know and we should understand ourselves that Jesus responds when people call on him. Remember, God hears and he cares when we persist in prayer. Okay, the next one is Jesus called his name. Jesus called his name. Jesus passed by. He came by him. Now uh, Jesus calls his name. Look at verse 5 with me. When Jesus reached that spot, he looked up and he said to him, he comes, he's coming through and he sees Zacchaeus in the tree, and he says to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Okay? I must stay at your house today. Um, so Jesus called his name, and uh, the question I wanted, to, I was kind of looking at today is how does Jesus know his name? And there's some different options here. Will you just take some time to explore this with me? I think it'd be, it'd, it'd be interesting, a little bit fruitful. Okay, so the first thing that I want you to notice here is that Jesus could have had a previous encounter with Zacchaeus, and so he knew his name because of a previous encounter. Over here on the right, you'll see previous encounter is P.E., okay? And then another option is that Jesus had heard of him from other people. Maybe Matthew knows all the tax collectors in the, the whole region, and so he's heard of Zacchaeus. There's this one dude down in Jericho that, uh, man, he's getting really wealthy off the taxes of, of God's people. And so maybe he knows through word of mouth, or maybe Mary and Martha being in a similar region uh, would say, you know, Zacchaeus uh, down there at Jericho, he really hit us when we came through uh, customs at Jericho. So maybe we would hear about, maybe Jesus heard about him from word of mouth. So if you see WM, that's word of mouth, right? And then another way that he might have known is that Jesus might have known Zacchaeus' name because of his, his own divine attributes, that uh, he was relying upon his omniscience at that moment, and he knew that this was Zacchaeus because he's the Son of God and, and op- is operating in the fullness of his nature, Hey, that's an option, and we're going to call that OM for omniscience. And then uh, the last one is that Jesus had knowledge by the help of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so another whole view on how Jesus walked in his humanity is that he did so not relying upon his own divine prerogatives, but rather trusting in the Holy Spirit, just as you and I have to. Okay, so that's a, a possibility here, and we're just going to say that, that that one is signified by HS, Holy Spirit. So I want you to see how this kind of plays out. I, I know which one I like best. Okay? I like one of these best, or one or two of them best. But truth is, uh, we can only speculate because we don't know. The text doesn't tell us how Jesus knew Zacchaeus' name. So all of this is speculation. Do you still want to go forward? 
we are speculating here, and, and there's a point to all of this. That's true. And how, Sue? I mean, that, that could be one of these bottom two. Okay? So we don't, we don't know how exactly. Uh, it's not told to us how, but, but that's a good parallel to this is to think that way. But we shouldn't, in speculating, we should never take our speculation too seriously, okay? I, I want to make that clear. Uh, we're, we're not free just to pick the one that we like and say that that's the truth and everybody else is wrong and they're uh, probably not going to make it to heaven, okay? So no, don't take that view on this. And, and I thought we might look at this because there's a practical result to each of these. So notice how there's a quadrant here. There's a natural way and a supernatural way. There's first-hand knowledge and there's second-hand knowledge. Okay? So if you look at these, you can see them divided up in this way. Okay? So if um, Jesus has had a previous encounter, then he's received first-hand knowledge from personal experience in a natural way. Okay? Is this a possibility? Okay? If, if Jesus was going through Jericho, like what we said, where they're traveling through, he was going past that custom station all the time. And maybe he had seen Zacchaeus there. Maybe he'd inquired about him. So from his own personal experience, maybe that's the case. Okay. What's another one here? I think a second one is, is that maybe through word of mouth. Okay. So this is secondhand knowledge, and it's natural. Somebody else tells Jesus about Zacchaeus. Okay. Um, a third option is omniscience. So this is now firsthand knowledge, and it's supernatural that he's doing it through his own omniscience. Okay. The divine attribute of omniscience is working through Jesus. Okay. And then a fourth one, of course, is the Holy Spirit. This is secondhand. He's receiving from the Holy Spirit. We can get into some theological difficulties here, but we just go with me for the sake of argument on this that the Holy Spirit reveals to Jesus in a supernatural way that this is Zacchaeus. Okay? So what, do, what would each of these mean? The first one, if it's through d- divine omniscience, that I think that emphasizes that God knows us, which is true, okay? that God knows us, and that's true. If it's through the word of mouth, and it might be even bad word of mouth, it suggests that Jesus loves despite others. Say, Somebody that Jesus knows says, there's this creep, Zacchaeus, who operates that station down there at Jericho. Every time I go through, he busts me on the customs, and I have to pay a lot of taxes. And Jesus says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to that Zacchaeus, and he's going to encounter him. It might be bad, but he's not going to give up on him. Okay? So then a, a third option is it's through a personal encounter, and it suggests that Jesus remembers people, that he had his own encounter with Zacchaeus in the past, and he remembered Zacchaeus, okay? And then the fourth one possibly could be it's through the Holy Spirit here and implies that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit to Zacchaeus for this divine encounter, and he knew his name as a, maybe a word of knowledge or something came to him, okay? So one reason I would probably steer away from divine attributes is that uh, my understanding is that Jesus operates through the gifts of the Holy Spirit when he's in the flesh. He relies upon the Spirit. You can take a different view on that, and there, there doesn't have to be division on it, but it's, it seems to me that Acts testifies of this, that uh, anointed by the Holy Spirit, Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. So 
He was empowered by the Holy Spirit to do these things and, not, and laying aside his prerogatives. Like he had the prerogative as the Son of God to know these things through his own power, but instead choosing to operate as a human, he relied upon the Holy Spirit. Seems to me that we probably, I would probably put less emphasis on this top quadrant here and maybe more on this if it's supernatural, okay? It doesn't diminish Jesus if it happens to be in the natural category, okay? Jesus, just like us, ate food. That's a very natural thing. He could have relied upon some supernatural sustenance, which he did at other places in his ministry, okay? I have food that you know not of. So him operating in a natural way through a personal encounter of his own or word of mouth, that doesn't diminish him. It, it Actually, he, he comes into it, and it, it could say some other things about why he's done what he, he's done. And so what makes sense? I always prefer, I always prefer when it's talking about Jesus, the supernatural. I always prefer that. I want it to be the, because I'm excited about the miraculous. I like to see God intervene in, in uh, things in this world, don't you? We want to see those things happen. Okay, I always prefer that. But I shouldn't make Scripture fit that if it's not what it's trying to say. So we're, we're speculating here, but I'm trying to make a point. There are some facts of history and geography, I think, that might tell us something. That Jericho was one of those border stations suggests Jesus had been through there before and may have met Zacchaeus. Okay? I don't want to be divided on all of that, but I want to suggest that as a possibility. Yes. That's true. That's true. So, divine leading. Okay. That's a good point. Okay. Any other thoughts? I guess uh, a question that I would have. Yeah. There, there, there can be a safeguard in that. And just saying, let's give the benefit of the doubt that something natural is happening here. Okay? It's not to say that he couldn't have done it supernaturally. And I would wonder how far, the only question I would have is how far does that go? Is it, is it everything or is it the ministry kinds of things that Jesus is doing? So, I mean, we could, and this happens, people take things like that to a ridiculous level. Like, he never, he never ate a loaf of bread without the Father telling him that. You know what I mean? So there has to be some room in there for natural decision-making. So. His mom told him to make wine. Yep. The hour had not, is not here. So I mean, this is good to, good to think about. And then let me kind of drop this on you. Um, and this is a Bible study tip for us is that if we have to speculate, it's probably not the main point of the story. Okay? So I just want to drop that on you, that this isn't the main point of the story, how Jesus knew Zacchaeus' name. If it had been, we'd be told. Okay? So it's not the main point of the story. It's, it may be something that is significant or we find interesting, but it's not the main point. Um, Zacchaeus received dignity by Jesus calling his name. Okay. This is more. This is more important than how he knew. I wanted to take us through that because to me it was interesting to think through. Uh, at the end of the day, we don't know. But the main point is that Jesus calls his name and he receives dignity 
by Jesus calling his name. He's a tax collector. Who knows what other names people call them? Crook or traitor or sinner. We actually know sinner because later on in verse 7, it says Jesus is going to the house of Zacchaeus, and people are thinking about how he's going to eat or going to the house of a sinner. Okay, so sinner is a definite word that tax collectors were called, and it was called that of Zacchaeus. But the name Zacchaeus, the name Jesus used, do you know, anybody know what it means? Zacchaeus, righteous, pure. Isn't that interesting? Here's a man who's probably stolen from people, has not acted righteous. And his name means righteous, and Jesus calls him by that name. I think that's significant. Jesus calls him by his name. And it wasn't because he was righteous, but maybe it was a reminder from the lips of Jesus who he was supposed to be. Then Jesus goes to his house, and even calling upon him, even talking to him, uh, Jesus risks reputation by being with Zacchaeus. And I wonder if we've we thought about that in our lives, that Jesus called us by name. And I wonder if we've considered that it's a risk to call us to him because we're not going to reflect him perfectly and we're not going to represent him perfectly. And there could be reputational damage done if we act the wrong way. And do you think that stopped him? How about evangelism? I've often thought about this, that in some ways there's, there's got to be a way that God could do evangelism and convince people of his reality that doesn't involve frail humans. And he chose this way. And I know there's good reasons for it because, one, he, he um, puts us in a place where we relate person to person. But often we get things wrong. And sometimes we, we hurt the situation rather than help it, or so it seems. But, you know, God is a God who reaps where he doesn't sow. Did you know that? The Bible, Jesus talks about that in a parable that he describes the, the master of the house going away. And, and you remember the people with the talent, some of them invested them. And then the one buried it in the ground. And when he returned, he said, you fool, you should have at least put it in the bank because I'm the kind who reaps where I haven't even sown. So he's going to get an effect. He's going to see lives touched and changed. Um, but Jesus risks that going to the house of Zacchaeus. Okay? Um, love takes a gamble, and Jesus does that. Love, love loves by calling our name. Okay? The next uh, thing here is that Jesus went to his house. Jesus went to his house. Look at verses 5 and 6. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up. He said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he came down at once. He is now is Zacchaeus, came down at once, and he welcomed him, Jesus, gladly. Okay, so he comes down. And what stands behind all of this probably is he's reaching out to someone, and there's going to be life change, but also... As they're traveling through, they've come to Jericho, and now they're still several miles ahead of them uphill to get to Jerusalem. So, practically speaking, his disciples need a place to go and to rest. Now, he's not converting Zacchaeus for that reason. All of this is working into one plan. That's to touch and change hearts. And so, he calls upon him, and he says, I'd like to go stay at your house. Jesus here uh, violates a social norm 
by asking to go to Zacchaeus' house. I don't know if you thought of this, but um, what Jesus is doing here uh, steps outside the bounds of what would be polite behavior. You wait to be invited to somebody's house. You don't invite yourself over. It still kind of exists today, doesn't it? Okay, but even more so in this culture, you're waiting for to be invited to somebody's home. But Jesus says, I'm going to your house today. Oh, you are. That's news to me. Yes, he's going to his house. Well, he welcomes him gladly. You know, Jesus didn't let convention, social convention, stand in the way of ministry. You can see that again and again. And sometimes I think we, we put our social conventions like, the rules of polite behavior, we put them on the same level with the law of God, and they're not. And one, one example is this, but you see it all through Scripture. Uh, he's, one, is, one is that he stayed and he talked with the woman at the well all by himself, alone. Okay? One, uh, it's a Jew and a Samaritan. That's not good. It's a man and a woman, and they're alone. All three of those things, are that doesn't look good, Jesus and he doesn't let that stop him from staying there and ministering to her. Uh, both culture and her domestic situation would have caused people to look down on him for doing that and her for doing that. Don't you understand? And this isn't the only place. What about the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair? And Don't you know what kind of woman this is? He wasn't going to let what other people thought of him and the violation of social custom stand in the way of ministry. And so, understand the significance of Jesus going to Zacchaeus' house. We need to realize that table fellowship uh, plays a really important, intimate role in friendship. It's, it's like when you go eat with somebody, you're, it's a sign of acceptance from both host and guest, okay? That I accept you and you accept me, and we agree, at least on some things in life. I think this is one of the reasons why it says in 1 Corinthians uh, 5, I think it's 5, verse 11, that you're not to eat with those who practice these certain behaviors, sexual immorality or swindlers or the greedy. I think uh, there's, there's like four or five things that are mentioned there. Don't even eat with them. Why? Because table fellowship in that culture suggested agreement with behavior. Okay, So Jesus is going. He doesn't necessarily agree with uh, Zacchaeus' behavior, but he's going for another kind of reason. Okay? Um, he's going now to eat with a tax collector and someone who was considered unworthy. It was frowned upon even to enter their home. And so Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house. He often ate with tax collectors. We know of that from other occasions. And many people must have considered this a very un-Jewish thing for Jesus to do. And especially if he's got this Messiah, um, uh, what's the right word? It's, what is it? Aura? Yeah, I was, that's one that came to mind. I was trying to avoid that one. What is it? Persona? Yeah, persona about him. But, but no, I was right with you, Nick. That was the word that came right to mind. But I'm, I'm thinking about how people saw him with the Messianic mantle, but they had a different conception of what that looked like. They were thinking, this is the deliverer of Israel. He's going to raise up a mighty army. He's going to feed them with his miraculous ability. And we're going to kick the Romans out. And we're going to finally see the kingdom of Israel triumph over the world. Okay? 
So what's he doing eating with a tax collector who pays tribute to Rome? Yeah, he's not, but I don't even think he's consciously thinking about that. It, uh, who am I to know what Jesus is consciously thinking about? But, but it seems to me he's set on his mission, and his mission is to seek and to save the lost. The thought isn't, what do people think about this? The thought is, how can this person be one? And so he, he conforms his behavior to his mission, as we should all do. Okay, so he's not there to endorse... Zac- Zacchaeus's behavior, but to call him to repentance. Okay, so sometimes we can get the wrong idea. You see somebody hanging out with somebody that's got a scrupulous uh, character, and you can think, well, they're in cahoots with the devil. Maybe what they're doing is ministering to them. I don't think we need to bring all our behavior down to the same level and do bad things that everybody else is doing just to get an end to share the gospel. But we can be a friend of sinners. Now, I don't think they should be in the same category where we're uh, relying upon brothers and sisters in Christ to build one another up and that there's an intimacy and a relationship that's there that you don't have with people in the world. But I think that there's a a sense in which we need to go out and and make friendships and draw people in through those connections. That's how they're one. If we're only headhunters for the kingdom... People are going to see through that and realize we don't have any authentic love. We only are interested in getting them saved. And they probably think we're just probably interested in getting them to pay their tithes to the church. And that's really, that's really sad because the kingdom isn't about that. Come on, right? But Jesus was not there to endorse his behavior, to call him to repentance. Luke chapter 5, verse 53 says, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus heard that, and he answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come uh, not to call the unrighteous, or the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Anybody catch the irony in that? Because they all needed a Savior. But he's playing, it's a uh, I think, an ad hominem argument where he, he relies upon their faulty premise that they're righteous and goes along with it but makes his case that I'm really not there for that. I'm, I'm here to save the unrighteous. And if they would have been listening to the Spirit, they would know that that's them too. Okay. So Jesus asked uh, to go to uh, Zacchaeus' house, even though it wasn't considered polite. And Zacchaeus welcomed him gladly. He wasn't offended and say, man, what's wrong with this guy? I thought he was a great revolutionary. He welcomes him gladly. In Luke 19, 7, it says, all the people saw this, and they begin to mutter, uh, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Uh, Notice this next part here. Jesus welcomes him into the kingdom. There appears to be a change of scene between verse 7 and 8, though it's not uh, apparent on the surface, but if you look at the details of it, it stands out. All the people saw this, verse 7, and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. He's gone into the house of uh, a sinner. Okay, uh, The gone into here, um, you, you, don't, you don't see it so much in the English text. Maybe your translation has it, but it's gone into. Okay, It's not gone to, but gone into. 
uh, Zacchaeus' house. So they're seeing it from the outside. And then if you notice the next verse here, but Zacchaeus stood up. Well, he's not outside. He's inside, standing up. So a change of scene has taken place real subtly here. But we need the story to continue in rapid succession. So that's why you almost don't notice this change of scene. But he stands up and he says to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Okay, so he's ready to make some changes in his life. He's sitting, he stands up, they're in his house, Jesus is there, and he stands up in order to make this change. And you see two parts to it here, two things taking place in this real change in Zacchaeus' life. The first is generosity. It's a broad-scale generosity. Half of what I have, I give to the poor. Okay, I don't know why this came to mind, but when um, when Zacchaeus is responding to Jesus here, he's ready to give half of his kingdom to the poor, right? And I thought of Herod, how he was ready to give half of his kingdom to um, the girl who danced, right? He's ready to give half of his wealth to the poor. Wealth is status, okay? So contrast that with the rich young ruler who was not willing to part with anything. And here we're starting to see a picture of God working in Zacchaeus' life that he turns the greedy into the generous, okay? That's the general turn that's taken place. Now he's going to talk about restitution. So there's generosity and there's also restitution. He's attempting to set things right. If I've taken from anybody, I'll pay back four times the amount. Okay, so now he's going to make restitution. I don't know what that looked like in terms of his income and what that was going to take out of his bank account, but Jesus welcoming him or saying his name certainly drew him into a place where he's ready to change. Listen to the words of Jesus on this. Today, in verse 9, Salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now we're hearing in verse 10 why Jesus is there. He's not there to endorse Zacchaeus' bad past behavior. He's there to seek and save the lost. Okay? His mission is clearly stated in this. He says, first of all, salvation has come to this house. Um, Jesus recognized change. Like this is a sign that the kingdom has come. Um, you, can't, you can't begin to follow the Lord without there being a change in our behavior. There ought to be a change. Previously, his money told him what to do. Okay. Remember what Jesus said, you can't serve God and mammon. Mammon was the money God. You can't serve the money God and Jesus. You can't serve God and mammon. So previously, the thing that caused him to have unscrupulous behavior where he swindled people was that he was serving money and maybe power because there's a certain amount of power that goes with being IRS, you know? So he's serving those things. And I want you to notice that other gods come with their own ethics. You see that if your God is money, then the ethics are whatever will get you more of it. And it doesn't matter if you violate principles. But if you serve God, it matters how you do things. And you become less about 
about the directional flow towards yourself and more about giving out. Salvation has come to this house. He's changed. Previously, money told him what to do. Now he acknowledged God, and it's turned his whole the directional flow of his life in the opposite direction. And then it says this. This, this is what Jesus says. This man, too, is a son of Abraham. Okay? What had he probably been called before because he was giving money to the Romans? Probably a traitor, unpatriotic, okay? Not a descendant of Abraham. Many people saw uh, tax collectors and prostitutes as on equal terms with Gentiles. You're a Gentile be the the essence of that. And all of the Gentiles were destined to be eternal firewood and would heat the homes of the godly, I guess. And so that that would have been the thinking. And what Jesus does is he restores his dignity. If people had been calling him a traitor, Jesus is calling him a true Israelite, now aligned with God. There's restored dignity to all who put their faith in Christ. You realize that's true even of us, that through faith, you're children of Abraham too. So we all get that share in the dignity of being called after the father of our faith. No longer strangers and aliens, but sons and daughters. Jesus makes a purpose statement in verse 10, as I've said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He tells us why he ignores the stigma with Zacchaeus why he singles him out, why he stayed at his house. It's to see him saved. And so the main point of this story is not how did Jesus know Zacchaeus' name, but the main main point of the story is to show how someone who's considered unredeemable can be redeemed when Jesus is involved. It can change them and call them into the kingdom. And here we have a tax collector being written off, but he's not written off by Jesus. If anything can make a difference in our lives, I think it's Jesus coming to our home, right? Jesus goes home with Zacchaeus. That's where we, we leave all of our baggage so that we can look good when we're around other people. But Jesus, when he goes home, it changes who we are. Zacchaeus went from being curious to convinced. He went from greedy to generous. He went from outsider to insider. In Matthew twenty one thirty one. Which of you two, uh, which of the two, he's talking about those who uh, say they'll obey and then they don't, and those who don't uh, say they'll obey and then they later do. He said, which of these two did what the Father wanted? The first they answered, and Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are in the kingdom ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him, but tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. So oftentimes, the one that's hardest to get are not those who understand themselves to be sinners, but those who think they're doing pretty good. Okay? So, but even they are not unredeemable. I told you about the man that I wasn't sure would come to the Lord. Um, It wasn't that he was a gross sinner. He was someone who'd been around church for a long time. And he'd seen the ugliness of Christians. And I thought he might have been too hard to, to follow God, to come and, and follow God. But I underestimated two things. One is that Jesus' way of getting through all of that mess and calling our name, I underestimated that. He knows how to do that really well. And the other thing 
is the power of a mother's prayers. And uh, you, many of you know Sean Mitchell. That's who I was talking about. He came to church with Leah several years ago. And he sat there, and I thought, man, he's super hard to the gospel. And I know some of his background and stuff. He's probably never coming to Jesus. He's one of the most wonderful and sensitive Christians you'll come to know. He gave his heart to Christ. And I think this last year may have been 10 years since uh, doing so. And so I hadn't written him off because I thought he would just never would because he was so bad, but because I thought his heart was so hard. But I've seen this happen again and again. People you never would have expected. Dax is probably one of those. We prayed for him. We had, uh, in our first years here, we had a list of people called Maranatha's Most Wanted. And Dax was on that, on that list, and we were praying for his salvation and stuff. And uh, I know his family was praying for uh, him to come to know the Lord. And he's a wonderful believer, trusting in Jesus. And so nobody's beyond God's ability to reach. And Dax, it's a Dax story to tell. But God met him in an unusual place. And uh, he, he can tell you all of that if you'd like to know. And so I have a couple points to make and we're done. This is all in conclusion here. So uh, the first thing is that no one's outside of the reach of Christ. Aren't you glad for that? Even those that we thought as irredeemable, Christ has proved again and again that he can take on the hard cases and he can soften the hard-hearted and he can take in the dregs of society and even the religious. And the second thing is no one is beyond Christ's ability to change. Even those long entrenched habits can be reformed under the lordship of Christ. He transforms our nature and changes our behavior. And depending on where you are in your relationship with Christ will depend on how you apply this. If you're trusting in Christ and you're yielded to him, then the reason we need to know this message is because we need to know that whoever we're ministering to is not beyond his reach. If you've not made that commitment to Christ, you need to know that no matter how far you've gone in your sin, you're not beyond his reach. But there's an application in both those. And you might have prayed for somebody for a long time, and they are getting more belligerent. I, I think that when we, get, when we see people get more belligerent, it means that they're fighting harder to stay out of the kingdom. Okay? I think that's one of the things. It's usually when they're dismissive, you need to, you need to double your efforts in prayer because um, those, those are the people that they're just acting as if it doesn't matter at all, and it does. So if you're already trusting Christ, don't write people off. Trust that God knows the way in. And if you're already trusting Christ, don't give up, uh, or excuse me, don't give in to the old ways of living, that he's still a transforming God even on this side of the cross. He's still... Is transforming us and changing us, and it's not too late to change. Stand with me if you would. I thought tonight we might take just a minute here and pray for somebody that you think of as a hard case. Okay. It's not a, a lack of faith to say that. It just seems hard to us. And maybe you're thinking, God, I don't know how you're going to win this person, but I really want to see them come to know you be a child that you, your child, it could be a, a brother or sister or somebody that you knew years ago, a parent even, that you'd like to see them come to know Christ. Let's take a couple minutes here and let's pray for them, and then we're going to pray for ourselves just, just for a couple minutes. Father, just thank you, Lord, that you're able to reach into those hidden spots, those 
those heart places where people have built up a wall against you. I pray that you would take down that wall, Lord, and you would find the way in. Lord, that you would make the way in, that you would help us to know how we can respond and to not get in the way of what you want to do, but to not stand by in inactivity. We pray and we witness and we want to see lives changed. And I'm praying for those really hard cases where sometimes it gets ugly. Words are said in response because conviction is real. And uh, that can be discouraging to us. But Lord, you know their heart and you know the way. And I pray that you begin to soften it even now. Each of these people that we're thinking of here tonight, we're praying for. And that you cause the walls to fall down and for them to repent. And to turn to you with fullness of faith in you. Pray it in Jesus' name. I'd like just to pray for all of us. Lord, help us not to get to the place where we write people off and think of them as unredeemable. Help us to always have a soft heart to what you want to do. And Lord, um, we want to continue to see you as the miracle-working God who's able to change who we are, to change our character. And we thank you that you you trade in those ugly parts of life for something beautiful. You, you take away the works and the deeds of the flesh that lead to corruption, and you give us in its place the fruit of the Spirit. And if, as we are, we're, we're in process. I pray that you continue to make us into who you want us to be, Lord, to not give up if we've failed you in a particular area, to keep uh, trusting in you and looking to you and working with you to see victory come in those areas because you want to transform us, our, our attitudes, our affections, and our actions to glorify you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you. Thanks for being here tonight. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.